Hey guys, Dr. Cassie here with another awesome talk sponsored by DECRA and featuring two top-notch ophthalmologists, Dr. Marnie Ford and Dr. Terry McCullough, here to talk about dry eye or KCS. I know that I have struggled with managing cases of dry eye in the past, and what about those dogs that walk and talk like dry eye but have a normal Schirmer tear test? Well, after talking to Drs. Ford and McCullough, my struggles felt like they made a lot more sense, and I walked away with some great pointers for managing these patients going forward. There's a lot to cover here, so let me go ahead and tell you about our speakers, and then we'll learn more about dry eye. Dr. Terry McCullough received a bachelor's degree in animal health science from the University of Arizona, followed by her DVM degrees from both Oregon and Washington State Universities in 1984. She completed a three-year residency in comparative ophthalmology from the University of Missouri-Columbia and became board certified in the American College of Veterinary Ophthalmologists in 1989. She also received a master's in comparative pathology in 1990. From 2001 to 2020, Dr. McCullough was the owner of her solo referral practice, Animal Eye Care, in Bellingham, Washington. Dr. McCullough's clinical interests are many and include complementary alternative medicine and the role of antioxidants in ocular health and disease in animals, retinal disease, the role of stress in animal wellness, and feline herpes virus ocular disease. She co-invented the veterinary vision supplement OcuGlow and was the co-founder of Animal Health Quest Solutions, LLC, a veterinary nutraceutical research and development company. Dr. McCullough is passionate about reducing the risk of damage to the eyes in animals at high risk for ocular disease by educating owners to help them make the best pet healthcare decisions and by helping veterinarians expand their knowledge about veterinary ophthalmology. Dr. McCullough lives in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with her husband and three cats. Their son has autism, which has transformed his parents into advocates for all beings in our animal kingdom without a voice. All pets and their owners deserve to live their best lives together. Dr. Ford graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in 2000 after completing a bachelor's degree in zoology at the University of British Columbia and a PhD in physiology at Monash University in Australia. Dr. Ford completed a rotating small animal internship at the University of Minnesota in 2001, followed by a three-year residency in comparative ophthalmology at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Dr. Ford achieved diplomate status from the American College of Veterinary Ophthalmologists in 2006. After co-founding a private referral hospital, West Coast Veterinary Eye Specialist in New Westminster, she opened Pacific Animal Eye Specialty Services, providing mobile medical and surgical ophthalmologic care to patients in the Lower Mainland, Vancouver Island, and the interior of British Columbia. In 2019, she returned to Australia, where she worked full-time in both medical and surgical ophthalmology, as well as resident training at Animal Eye Care in Melbourne, Australia. In 2023, Dr. Ford returned to Vancouver to provide locum services to ophthalmologists across Canada. Clinically, Dr. Ford has been interested in corneal repair, the development of ocular prosthetics, and the effect of changing light frequency on vision. This excitement led Dr. Ford, like Dr. McCullough and other like-minded professionals, to create Pet Health Harbor LLC, a company dedicated to fostering online education and community in the world of pet health. All right, hopefully I have convinced you I have two wonderful ophthalmologists here with so much to teach. Let's go ahead and get into our episode and learn more about dry eye. 
All right. So for today's episode, I am joined by doctors Terry McCullough and Marnie Ford, and we're going to talk about dry eye management. And I'm so happy that you've agreed to join me to talk about this because, you know, getting to the diagnosis and and knowing what the right management techniques are, it, it seems like something I always have. I always have some questions in my head. I never feel like, oh yeah, this is what it is, and I I completely know what to do with this. So. Thank you both for joining me to to go over this in a little bit more detail. No problem. Excellent to be here. Wonderful. Well, jumping right in with the basics, which it may seem like kind of an obvious question, but I find myself kind of curious as far as the answer goes, what is dry eye? Yeah, I wanted to say, Cassie, that, you know, management of dry eye, the right management. But in order to have the right management, you need to have the right diagnosis. In order to have the right diagnosis, you need to know what dry eye is because it's more than what most of us were taught in veterinary school. And it's actually kind of complicated. It doesn't just boil down to a Schirmer tier test value. Well, darn. <laughs> it really doesn't. Dry eye is not simply reduced tear volume. It is really, unfortunately, a multifactorial disease of the ocular surface, you know, we doctors, we don't like the term multifactorial. It means we have to work a lot harder at figuring <laughs> out what's going on. But it's characterized by a loss of balance, a loss of homeostasis of the tear film. And the clinical signs are caused by tear film instability. And instability can mean not enough tears, but it can also mean that the tears just simply aren't working right. So the clinical signs are caused by tear film instability, abnormal function, hyperosmolarity of the tears and inflammation of the surface of the eye damage. There's nerve, neurosensory abnormalities, the immune systems involved. And to illustrate this is something that I have coined the Neopolydex sort of boomerang. And we've all had this where we have a dog come in, their shermers are fine but they got yucky discharge and we put them on Neopolydex and it clears up. They look great. The owner's happy. So we continue on that road, but every time we take it off the Neopolydex, the magic goes away and they're yucky again. But their shermers are always fine. Those dogs, I would bet more than a nickel, actually have qualitative tear film deficiency. Okay, absolutely. You're touching on something that I have definitely seen clinically, a dog that walks and talks like a dog with dry eye, but has a completely normal Schirmer tear test. So Dr. Ford, can you help us understand the differences between qualitative and quantitative dry eye and the effect that those would have on the Schirmer tear test and how we would kind of distinguish between the two? So I think it boils down to, well, really, when we're talking about what causes dry eye, we have to we have to think about a little bit of background first. First of all, there's a precorneal tear film, and that's made up of three layers. It's kind of like a water sandwich sitting on top of the cornea. So there's a th really thin outer lipid layer, and that's made from secretions from those little glands that line the eyelid margins. Those are called the meibomian glands. This produces an oily layer, and it reduces the evaporation of the watery layer, 
but it also stabilizes and optically smooths the tear film surface. So the thick middle layer is the watery layer I was just describing that the, the thin outer layer sits on top of. And this layer comes from the tear glands. And the tear glands are both the third eyelid gland and then the lacrimal gland, which is in under the upper eyelid. And these two areas produce the watery layer in different. So the last layer of the water sandwich, for lack of a better analogy, would be the thin inner mucin layer. This mucin is produced from the goblet cells of the conjunctiva, so the slippery tissue that covers the surface of the eye and lines the eyelids. And this keeps the watery layer stuck to the cornea and enhances the spreading of the tears over the corneal surface. So the thick watery layer is then essentially kept onto the cornea, stuck to the cornea through the mucin layer, and it's it's inhibited for evaporation through the thin lipid layer on the outside. A reduction in any of these three layers can cause dry eye. So it's not just about the watery layer. That's, that's the most prominent, the most well-known version of dry eye. Quantitative tear film is when you reduce the lack of the, there's a reduction in the thick watery layer. And like I said before, that's the most well-known because that's the one that's most easily tested for in the clinics. The second form that's less well-known is called qualitative tear film deficiency, and that's where you have a reduction in the thin mucin layer and or the lipid layer. This is less well-known, and it's grossly undertreated in vet clinics. And I think this is where Dr. McCullough was getting into the neopolydex boomerang. That's the steroid that's in the antibiotic steroid combination medication that she was describing is what calms down the goblet cell inactivity, it just calms down the inflammation that can cause inactivity as well as inflammation at the meibomian glands. And then you take away that steroid effect or antibiotic effect, and you'll have this rebound in these in this qualitative deficiency. I want to add a little bit to what you said, Marnie, as I was thinking about this. When, when we talk about reduction in the thick water layer or reduction in the thin mucin or lipid layer, it's more than reduction too, it's dysfunction. Like you could have the same, you could, you know, in a lab, you could measure the amount of mucin, measure the amount of lipid, but those lipids could be deranged. The mucin could be deranged. It might not be made right. The composite might be wrong. And with that, the tear film is screwed up too. So there's just, when you think it just expands the different ways that dry eye can occur. If it's, if it's unstable in any way, including the composite, then you could have a dry eye problem. That makes a lot of sense. I know I've definitely experienced that neopolydex boomerang. And yeah, I think sometimes it's easy to forget about that qualitative dry eye. And you know, you go, well, their Shermer is fine. I don't understand. They have tears mm. there. What's going on? And so that makes a lot of sense that we may have a loss in the quality and of the makeup of the components that are keeping that eye lubricated. And so we're, we're getting those same symptoms, even though our Shermers are normal. Yeah, right. Tears have to work right. They have to stick to the eye for a certain amount of time before they slide off the eye and drain out the tear ducts. Tears are always fighting gravity. You know, your dog and your cat, they're looking at you. Their, their curvature, their cornea is, you know, perpendicular to the ground. And so tears want to slide off. What holds them on? The mucin and blinking spreads the tears. 
But if, if that's screwed up, then the tears are going to slide off the eye too fast and you're going to get dry spots no matter how much tears you're making. You could be making tons of tears and still have a dry eye problem. And that's a really important take-home message. As far as what can cause quantitative absence of a tear gland, and it can be iatrogenic, such as surgically removing a prolapsed third eyelid gland, which is a no-no. And I try to avoid, it's never going to work, but I try to avoid using the term cherry eye because it implies that this prolapsed, you know, little pink thing there in the inside corner of the eye can be plucked. It can be removed. And because you pluck cherries, you pick cherries, but no, you should not remove it because you have lost 30, immediately lost 30 to 40% of the tears for that eye forever. And you do not know if the remaining 60, 70% tears from the orbital lacrimal gland is going to stay. This dog could develop dry eye later on in life. Plus losing the third eyelid gland kind of can make the remaining orbital lacrimal gland tissue just kind of burn out from uh, overuse, trying to keep up. You remove that prolapsed third eyelid gland and years down the road, that eye could have a devastating dry eye problem and become blind from pigmentation. And you would never know because by that time, well, you might not never know because that by that time, the dog has moved on to another clinic or another veterinarian or whatever. You just don't know the results of snipping that thing out. So iatrogenic, the second is congenital. And this is rare, but it's not as rare as you think it is. If you look, I think you'll find it. Toy breeds, and, and you don't read about it in, in books either that much. Um, usually toy breeds, Yorkies, I've seen in Chihuahuas or mixed toys. So the dog is born with one eyeball and the eyelids for that eyeball very subtly smaller than the other. So you have subtle microphthalmos and subtle microblepharon. And what's happening with these dogs is that they don't have any tear gland tissue, congenital. I mean, they're born without tear. I mean, I can't prove that, but that's my supposition. They're born without tear gland tissue, but at the time these tiny eyes are a little bit bigger, they can no longer compensate and they'll present six to 12 months of age with extreme blepharospasm no tears, bone dry, and will not respond to a tear stimulant, such as tacrolimus or cyclosporine, which we're going to talk about later, or to other strategies such as oral pilocarpine, which Marnie is going to talk about later. And these eyes need aggressive forever lubrication and treatment. And sometimes the owner, and, and it's hard to see this blepharospasm because it's a tiny dog, it's hard. I mean, it's not so. It's hard to see that the eyelids are smaller on that side. It's hard to see the eyeball is smaller. <laughs> I'm sure I've missed the first three or four of these that that came into my exam room because it's it's difficult. But these are ones that you're gonna you're gonna kind of lose before you even start because you're not gonna be able to to fix this unless you go perhaps to a parotid duct transposition. But some of these dogs will just end up having the eye removed because the owners can't keep up with medication. And then besides the absence of the gland for quantitative, there's reduced gland function. The most common reason is the immune system attacking the tear glands, immune-mediated lacrimal adenitis, which is probably the most common cause. You can also have hormonal issues causing it or affecting it. It doesn't necessarily cause it, but it can exacerbate it, such as hypothyroidism, Cushing's disease, diabetes, distemper virus, and also pharmacologic 
cause of reduced gland function, uh, trimethoprim sulfa, systemic, that can be permanent. That can be a permanent loss of uh, tear production. And also uh, topical atropine, uh, that's temporary, but it's pretty profound while it is temporary. You put a drop of atropine in the eye, now it can be dry for days. The pupil can be dilated for days. Systemic atropine can have an effect, you know, during anesthesia or pre-anesthetic, can have an effect on the tear production too, but not as much as topical. And if you put a drop of atropine in one eye, both eyes will get dry, which is bizarre, Huh. but it's true. Yeah. And other reduced gland function can be from just generalized, just from anesthesia. Um, you don't have to have given them atropine. They can just, they can just reduce tear production due to anesthesia. So lubrication really is important during anesthesia, particularly the brachycephalics. And then finally, for uh, reduced gland function, neurogenic. Yes, that sounds great. Dr. Ford, please tell us more about neurogenic KCS. Yeah. So neurogenic is an area that I think is a really important area of dry eye. It's associated with a loss or reverse, reversed parasympathetic tone. So just to back up a step, we all know we have two, two nervous systems, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic deals with the fight or flight mode of response. So these immediate actions that's required. For the parasympathetic tone, it deals a lot with just the basic basal functions of your body, like gland secretion and sweating and, and all of these sort of very low-lying background noises. So when we have a loss or reduced parasympathetic tone to the lacrimal gland or the, the third eyelid gland, we can have reduced gland function, so reduced tear function. This can be a consequence of trauma. It can be associated with an idiopathic form. In other words, we have no idea what causes it. Or it can be through immune-mediated causes of parasympathetic dysfunction. This can resu result as well in reduced corneal sensitivity, which can cause an impaired corneal blink reflex. There's lots of dogs that have reduced corneal sensitivity, particularly because they're brachycephalic or they're diabetic, because diabetic can cause deranged nerve function to various tissues. So when you're brachycephalic, you don't blink much, then your cornea gets toughened and it will lose sensation. One of the things that makes us blink is we can feel our eyeballs drying out and we got to blink. Well, if you don't feel your eyeballs drying out because the nerve endings are not doing so well, you're not going to blink as well. But the corneal blink reflex itself, when it's normal, that will trigger reflex tearing from parasympathetic innervation to the tear glands. So that's, that's normal. The, the normal thing is you blink because you can feel your eyeballs drying out. And then that causes reflex tearing from the parasympathetic nerves going to the tear glands. So if you're not blinking, then you don't have that parasympathetic innervation to the tear glands working so well. And just to clarify, you're saying not blinking because of their anatomy with a brachycephalic that they have these big eyeballs and maybe they're not getting Uh, good, adequate closure. um, that, that's a good question. That's part of it. It's multifactorial, but that is part of it. And we can, we definitely should get into brachycephalics. We could spend two hours on brachycephalics, three hours on brachycephalics. I'm sure. Oh, their eyes are so tough to manage. But the bug-eyed dogs, 
And we're seeing more and more French bulldogs, for example. I guess that's the number one breed now in the U.S. But anyway, their eyeballs are prominent. As the muzzle gets shortened, the orbit becomes more shallow saucer shaped instead of a, uh, you know, deep socket. So it, it, they have to work harder. Uh, it's, think about eyelids going over a frog's eyes. I mean, just wonder how they do it, you know. Um, <laughs> but same thing, the, eyeball, the eyelids have to work hard to blink over the surface. And so what that means is the cornea will lose sensation, starts in the center when they're young even, and loses sensation because it's exposed to air more. Absolutely. And some of these dogs, as they age, then they will not they, they will not keep their lids closed all the way when they're sleeping either. So there's constantly a strip of central strip of cornea, horizontal, that is not lubricated. Because keep in mind, not only do the lids close to protect the cornea, but the lids act as spreaders for the tears. The lids help distribute the tears. And if the lids aren't meeting in the center, the tears aren't going to the center. So Brachycephalic dogs have reduced corneal sensitivity. It's a fact. I mean, it's been measured. They and that doesn't get better with age. Yeah, and that really important to point out here because not something I had really taken into consideration. I mean, certainly I see dry eye in the brachycephalic breeds, but you know, to be on the lookout early and realize that they do have this decreased corneal sensitivity, so they are very predisposed to developing dry eye as time goes on. Yeah, and, and and think about it. If they don't blink, you have an impaired blink reflex, which is also called the corneal reflex, which means that you are losing parasympathetic innervation, stimulation of the tear glands. Absolutely. So you have reduced tear production simply because you are not blinking right well. And you're not blinking well because you have reduced corneal sensitivity, and you have reduced corneal sensitivity because you're bug-eyed. Sure. <laughs> It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle and it's there. It's there. So I know we're, we're really diving into this, but I think it's really important because if, because there's so many dogs that are not diagnosed with qualitative tear film deficiency and they're missing out on being treated. So besides uh, the, in addition for, for qualitative tear film deficiency, what can cause it getting into that topic, reduced goblet cell and or meibomian gland function. Lots of things that can cause that. Trauma, burns, surgical trauma, inflammation. You can have immune-mediated meibomianitis. You can have meibomian gland dysfunction. When you flip the lid and look at the inside surface and see little yellow spots, those are chalasia, which are impacted meibomian glands with this kind of impacted oil. Looks sort of like cottage cheese maybe oh, ricotta. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, Shih Tzus are the poster breed for that. Um, you can have blepharitis for a number of causes, conjunctivitis, you know, dry eye itself causes conjunctivitis and that itself can then cause a, a burnout of the goblet cells. You can have hormonal changes that can cause reduced goblet cell or meibomian gland function, preservatives and eye drops. And the big culprit is benzalkonium chloride. Another key take home for me is that I hate benzalkonium chloride. It should not be in eye drops. It disrupts the tear film. It destabilizes it. It breaks up the oil layer. It acts as a surfactant and um, it's cheap and it's 
it's always going to be in some of these drops, but that's the one you really want to avoid. It's, it's bad. And so you can see where if you're putting an antibiotic drop in the eye, because you got a melting corneal ulcer or whatever associated with dry eye, and this is, and let's say you got to put it in every two hours. Oh my gosh, the benzylcorneal chloride you're putting in the eye every two hours, that's bad juju. It's, it's not a good thing. So you want to try to go for an antibiotic that doesn't have that kind of preservative in it. And one choice that I've always liked is moxifloxacin, but there are others. Like ophthalmos, that's not blinking. We just talked about that before. That can cause inner uh, problems with the qualitative tear film deficiency. A lipid dysfunction. You can have a generalized lipid dysfunction that causes seborrhea, and that can also affect the oil glands in the eyelids. And then you have some presumed breed-related qualitative tear film deficiency, and the poster dog for that, in my opinion, is, uh, is Shih Tzu's. They actually, they can have a meibomian gland dysplasia um, and dysfunction. Gosh, who knew there were so many causes and, you know, and presentations for, for dry eye. Let's talk real quick about when we would suspect dry eye, when we would pull out our Shermer tear test, and as we will learn, potentially do some qualitative testing as well. What types of clinical signs are we generally seeing in these patients? Yeah, thanks. So clinical signs, there there can be a number of them, and there's no textbook presentation for a dry eye case. You can have multiples of, of clinical signs, or you can just have one. But the, the probably the most famous one would be the copious mucoperlant or the mucky discharge that the owners describe. They come in and they say, oh, I have to clean his eyes two times a day, three times a day, four times a day to get rid of all of this discharge. That would be the the one thing that I would say every vet should absolutely pull out their Shermer tear strip to measure the tears. Other clinical signs that can be present that may be less obvious would be things like conjunctivitis. If the dogs aren't actually having a big discharge, but they're having a, a red or swollen conjunctival tissue, they may be attributed to allergies. And that's, again, where this steroid-antibiotic combination comes into play. Dogs may have a little bit more squinting because they're just irritated. If you've ever had dry eyes yourself, you might be a little bit more, um, it, it feels like um, sandpaper almost on your eyes. There can be some corneal changes that occur, even very subtle. They can be a little bit of, there can have a, a little bit of corneal scarring and sometimes blood vessels are developed. Even with time, there can be some pigment forming and that may not be immediately obvious as being related to the low tear production or low tear quality. Corneal ulcers that keep developing over and over and over, and they're going, I, I, the owners are saying, look, I've treated him, he's healed, he looks great, there's no discharge, but he keeps getting ulcers. That would be another way. Just like with a person who's got sandpapery eyes, you're going to probably rub at them a little bit more. So dogs that are rubbing, that can also induce some self-trauma, so they can also get ulcers from that. Physically looking at the eyes, they can appear dry, tacky corneal surfaces. And we do find that these dogs who develop dry eye, their, their clinical signs do tend to be more severe than in humans. And this is where Dr. McKellar had mentioned earlier that there can be an increased risk of blindness in dogs due to these massive progressive corneal changes. And that primarily would come through the form of either ulceration that goes awry or corneal pigmentation and scarring. So those would be the clinical signs really that I would jump to. 
all good to be on the lookout for and things that we see commonly. And it is easy to say like, oh, maybe it just has a little bit of allergies, you know, maybe good to start looking for this early because you know, maybe it's not so bad that we're going to start seeing the, the squinting and the mucky discharge and all of this, but something we can diagnose a little bit earlier if we're looking for it. Well, that's, so, the, you know, that just to jump in there, that's actually yeah. a very good point that you raise because I think sometimes we we do say, oh, it could be allergies, it could be this, it could be that, and let's start treating him. But why not take the five minutes or less that it's going to require just to test for dry eye first? Because that can cut a whole long time of, of treatment and frustration and cost and all that. Why not nip that in the bud right off the beginning? Say, okay, let's do a Shermer's, but let's also look for qualitative changes. And then at least rule that out and then progress on with other treatments. Because it could truly just be allergies. I mean, let's face it. Sure. However, but but what if it's not? And, and you've now put this owner and this patient on a path of treatment that's just boomeranging back and forth and back exactly. and forth. Why not, why not just get it over with first? So so don't use Shermer tear testing or qualitative testing as a last resort. Why don't we use it as a mm. first resort? This is why in ophthalmology, we have our three minimum database tests that every single patient gets before we even actually look at the dog. And that's checking pressures, measuring tears, and staining the cornea. Mm -hmm. So you just, you get it out of the way first, then progress on if it's something else. Absolutely. And so along those lines, now that we're on the lookout for a dry eye, we're going to find it early and not just chalk it up to allergies. We've talked about the Shermer tear test, but what about other testing for dry eye? How do we get this diagnosis if say our Shermer tear test is normal? Okay. Well, then we're really looking at a qualitative deficiency. So when we're looking at, we're trying to test for a qualitative deficiency, we're looking for a thick mucky discharge. That's often a presentation, but they have a normal tier value, the normal Shermer tier test, which we all remember is between roughly 15 to 25 for dogs and 10 to 25 for cats. And there's always a little bit of a, a reduced tier amount, like 10 to 10 to 15 in dogs, 5 to 10 in cats as kind of the gray zone. There may be other things going on like really hot weather or the cat's really stressed out or something like that. So we wouldn't necessarily, you know, immediately dive into diagnosing him with dry eye. If that was the case, we'd probably want to retest him. However, to get myself, let me get myself back on track. Qualitative tear film would have a thick, mucky ocular discharge in a lot of cases, not all with a normal Shermer tear test. The other thing we want to do is a tear film breakup test. And that's something that a lot of veterinarians haven't been trained to do. And it's not something that you would probably do on your initial visit, but it certainly is something you can do. This is where you put fluorescein stain. Um, fairly non-dilute. It, it, you obviously want to wet the strip and you want to make it so it spreads well with fluid, but it doesn't have to be super dilute. You put a, a, a drop of fluorescein stain on the eye and then using your blue light, you're, you're watching the eyelids at, just after they've done their first blink and then you hold the eyelids open. You really stare at the cornea with the blue light and you're watching for little um, rivulets to start to form with dry spots in between. And when there's a mucin deficiency, that, that tear film breakup time will be really short. It'll be probably around five to 10 seconds at the most. 
in a normal tear film breakup time, it should be 20 seconds or longer, meaning that the tear film is being spread and coating the cornea for 20 seconds or longer, because you're going to blink more often than 20 seconds, every 20 seconds in most cases, mm -hmm. so that your cornea is then not always being exposed to a dry spot. But when you have deficiencies that would be um, analogous with a qualitative deficiency, that, that tear film breakup time will be much less. The other things you can do is you can look at the edges of the eyelids and you can look at the actual meibomian gland openings. That's those little dots that line the eyelid edge itself. And there's something called meibomian gland doming, where instead of just having a little dark spot, it'll actually be a little raised up dome. And that can indicate a meibomian gland deficiency or poor function. And then there's also rose bengal dye staining. And this will stain living tissue, uh, living surface epithelial cells. And wherever the mucin is missing, you'll find out that there's a little bit of rose bengal that gets retained at that spot. And these are glow strips that you can purchase. They're, they're used exactly the same way as the as the fluorescein stain. So it's just telling us where there's a mucin deficiency. And that's that's quite a helpful test as well. I will be honest, like when I think of different stains and stuff, sometimes I get a little bit intimidated because I don't always know how to use them. But knowing that these are available as glow strips, kind of similar to how we are used to doing our eye stains, that's much less intimidating and definitely seems like something that would be really doable in the clinic to assess these dry eye patients. Yeah. Uh, once you put it in, these dogs look like they're from hell. I mean, oh, no. the pink, the pink <laughs> and the conjunctiva turns pink too. So you just tell the owner, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna wear off and they will wash <laughs> out, but they look quite striking. Afterwards. I would believe it. Not like the little aliens <laughs> they become with the fluorescein stain. <laughs> well, the only, the only thing I would add about neurogenic in terms of diagnosis is it really is a diagnosis of exclusion. It's one of those ones that you can't really test the nervous system directly, unfortunately. And, and so we do consider neurogenic dry eye when there's been no response to treatment for quantitative and qualitative. And so it is, like I said, a diagnosis of exclusion. It is more supported, however, when you have other concurrent signs like dry nostrils or a history of trauma or ear surgery, specifically, for example, the total ear canal ablation surgery, or if there's been facial nerve paralysis or any kind of head trauma that, and then the dry eye occurs, then we'd have a high, much higher suspicion of it. Similarly, if it's a small breed that's being presented with a problem like Yorkshire Terrier, Young Jack Russell, Chihuahuas, or the Brachyspecies phallus, then we would have, of course, it would go a little bit higher on our list. So that's the issue with the, the neurogenic. It's a trickier one. But when we talk about treatment, then we'll have more support for it as well if it responds. Sometimes you will see a dog come in with dry eye and their nostril on the same side as the dry eye or assuming it's unilateral or it's really bad on one eye, the nostril's dry. It's it's dry, dry, dry. It looks like a little nostril mummy, sort of. And we've all seen that. And that's called zero micteria. I love that word. It starts with an X, X-E-R-O, micteria. That is a cool word. It's a cool word. I love it. So that's, that is quite often neurogenic. And that's the first thing that um, Dr. Ford and I think about, but what I what I learned at one point is that when the nostrils dry, 
there are actually lubricating little glands inside the nostril called uh, uh, nasal glands. And they will respond and they, they, if they're not working, and that's neurogenic usually, but they will, we're going to talk about treatment later, but they themselves will respond to tacrolimus and a lesser extent to cyclosporine. And so if tacrolimus or cyclosporine can be applied to the nasal glands, presumably, you know, when you put a, a, put a medication on the eye and then it travels down the nasolacrimal duct and out the nose, then it gets the nasal glands, it will help the nostril get moist again. So the nostril doesn't become dry because tears aren't coming down the nostril. The nostril's dry because the nasal gland is not working on that side. Huh. So, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is very cool. And yeah, at that point we're, you know, we're solving problems that we, we didn't even know were really causing the dog problems that can get better if we get the appropriate treatment on board. So let's talk about what that looks like as far as treatment goes. This is where I feel a little shaky. I don't always know which drug to reach for first and what kind of response to look for and what percentage of that drug I need. So I am really looking forward to you shedding some light on some of those questions. Okay. So we've got a few goals that we want to try to achieve. We want to try to increase their tears and we want to try to address their pain and we want to try to reduce self-trauma and corneal trauma. So I, I guess the first thing would be to try to increase their tear production because that will address a lot of these of these issues. Based on what we've diagnosed as far as whether or not it is a tear volume or a tear quality, that will help to guide some of our treatments. For tear volume and, and also for tear quality, we do use a modulating in immunomodulating drugs that can be in the form of cyclosporin or in the form of tacrolimus. Those are the two that we have available to us right now. Optimune is something that I'm sure every veterinarian has encountered at some point. That is cyclosporin. It is an ointment and it's a 0.2% concentration. If you need more cyclosporin, in other words, you're not having the response that you want from that, then we will increase it through compounding as a 1% or a 2% solution suspension. And that can come in the form of a drop or as an ointment as well. And then I like to think of it as a second generation. There's tacrolimus. That's also an immunomodulating drug. And that can be in the form of a 0.02 to a 1% compounded drop or an ointment as well. Many veterinarians will reach for Optimune as a first line because it's something that they can order into their clinic and have readily available. And there's nothing wrong with Optimune at all. It's an ointment, so it does stay on the eye for longer than the drops of either the cyclosporin or the tacrolimus would be. It actually works really well. Restasis is a medication that people often will use, and that's a 0.05% cyclosporin. I believe that's a drop as well. We don't often use these immunomodulating drops in the presence of a corneal ulcer. It is a controversial point amongst ophthalmologists whereby there's some belief that it can affect the healing process in a negative way. I don't know that that's, that's universal. And I don't know that, I mean, I know I have treated corneal ulcers in the presence of dry eye with tacrolimus, not for the sake of the ulcer, but I'm just saying stopping their treatments. I, I haven't always stopped the treatments when there's a, a corneal ulcer that develops, but I don't like to use it if there's a deep infected 
or melting ulcer. I, I tend to stay away from these. I figure these dogs are on so many medications for the ulcer that now adding a tear stimulant to their regime is just going a bit too far. These immunomodulating drops will reduce T-cell immune-mediated immune, uh, inflammation that interferes with tear production and damages the goblet cells and the meibomian glands, thereby allowing these tissues to function better. They also have anti-inflammatory properties, which improve the conjunctival and meibomian gland health. They have been noted, which has been a really interesting sort of, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it was kind of by a happy accident, I suppose, that these medications can reduce corneal pigmentation and scarring. I find that this personally is much truer for the tacrolimus than it is for the cyclosporin. The corneal pigment really does become reduced over time with with use chronic use of these drugs and it's it's every day using these drugs it's not a hit and miss kind of medication it's it's an everyday treatment i've got many cases where i've had serial phot photography of patients that have a significant amount of corneal scarring that becomes not only reduced in area but also in density so these animals have improved vision afterwards they don't work overnight. These are medications that require, I always say, four to six weeks to really get them gearing up in the in the eye. These these medications require time to work, and so when people don't notice a difference after a month of of application, it's critical that they don't just stop the medication. It's important to keep on going because there will be responses over time. Absolutely. I mean, gosh, my eyes just kind of feel a little bit fuzzy even just listening to this conversation. I feel like I want to go put some eye drops in. So I can't imagine how that must be amplified in a pet who's dealing with dry eye. So Dr. McCullough, can you tell us more about the importance of lubrication and maybe some principles to keep in mind for a patient who either has dry eye or maybe is predisposed to it? Uh, in human medicine, artificial tears is big business, all different kinds of artificial tear lubricants, gels, ointments are tend to be relatively uniform. You know, keeping in mind lubrication is temporary. It's not going to change the structure, the function of the tear glands. The tacrolimus and cyclosporine make the tear glands work better. If there's any tear gland tissue there left to get resuscitated and work, that is. So, but lubrication is an important part of our toolbox. And the big things to think about is in a lubricant is um, consider having it also contain hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid is, um, is also a hot topic these days. We've probably heard about it in skin products, but it is also uh, in a lot of ophthalmic products more and more and more because it does all kinds of stuff. I really want to put a a shout out for the only lubricant ointment, ophthalmic ointment that has hyaluronic acid in it, and that is called Off the Vet Ointment. You should have it from your veterinary supply company. It's made by Decra. It has 0.4% hyaluronic acid, and every brachycephalic animal should go to bed with some of that in both of their eyes. I'm not kidding. It should be a lifetime thing. Not unlike skin, the cornea benefits from long-chain, high-molecular-weight glycosaminoglycans that are in hyaluronic acid molecules. And these are long-chain, high-molecular-weight that they tangle together and, they, and they, they absorb fluid, they absorb water, and they plump up water, if that makes sense. They help 
tears stick to the surface of the cornea. They'll mix with tears and help reduce evaporation. They stabilize the tear film. They reduce inflammation. They're really slippery. So if you have a dry, dry lids, the eyes are just, oh, some of these dogs, you wonder how they can even blink. It's so tacky, so dry. So if you add a lubricant where they, the lids can slide over the cornea and blink better, that's a good thing. And hyaluronic acid makes them slide even, even better. If you, you just put some of this hyaluronic acid, you know, in your finger and just put your fingers together and just like, wow, this is great. And it takes on water and it helps with corneal hydration. Ointments last longer than drops. Ointments last, you know, they would last the longest when, when the owner is applying it at night. I would also add old dogs. Old dogs don't blink well either. And so some of them, you know, one of the one of the homeworks you can give your owners is number one, have them stare at their dogs for at least a minute and count how many blinks the dog, complete blinks the dog has. Persian cats too. You can have Persian cat owners do this too. And I think they would be appalled when they see how few complete blinks there are. And also to look at their dogs when their animals when they're sleeping and see if the lids are closed all the way. And if they're not, that's a problem too. That's a red flag. Another, another reason that hyaluronic acid is such a big thing right now is because, and lubricants in general, is because humans, where there's an epidemic, maybe perhaps a flood of digital eye strain um, due to extended computer or digital device use, eye discomfort, fatigue, oh, oh, blue light, blue light from these devices, dry eye, blurry vision, headaches, and I put forth the thought that humans with digital eye strain are kind of like, and the, and the results from that, not blinking when you're looking at your screens, is equivalent to being a French bulldog, <laughs> to being a, a bug-eyed dog oh, no. or a cat. They're not blinking well, you're not blinking well. They were born that way. You were not born that way, but you were becoming that way because of the digital age. The other thing is you want a preservative-free topical on everything as much as possible. Again, you don't want benzalkonium chloride. It disrupts and breaks up the tear film. And preservative-free, there are now bottles that are becoming more and more ubiquitous with a one-way valve and a little tip on them that has silver ions embedded in the tip that's antibacterial. So you can have a multi-dose preservative-free bottle that decorates off the vet line has these kinds of bottles, sodas, eye drop vet gel, and a couple others. And it's 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 cool. You don't have to have a single use little plastic thingy and then throw it away after you put it in the eye. Very cool. And Dr. Ford, I understand that pilocarpine can be used to treat some of these patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about treatment with pilocarpine? So pilocarpine is a medication that we give to dogs who have, we suspect, neurogenic dry eye. It's comes in the form of an, a topical pilocarpine for the eyes. It's called isoptocarpine, is a brand that we use regularly. Comes as a one or a two percent concentration. You can use either. I typically use the one percent for small dogs and two percent for large dogs. It is an ophthalmic drop, but however, you put it in their food. So you don't put it in their eyes. In fact, please don't put it in their eyes. Because it 
It's a parasympathetic mimetic. So it's going to mimic the parasympathetic nervous system. And by doing so, you can cause these dogs to create more parasympathetic tone, which is really cool. So that shows up in the dog as drooling, but making more tears as well. So we do this with a very stepwise method. It's literally one drop, not a squirt, as we take a long time training owners to not put in a squirt. So one drop in the food bowl in the morning and the evening. And then every three days, I'll increase that drop by one drop or increase that dose by one drop, meaning now you put two drops in the morning, one in the evening, then three days later, two in the morning, two in the evening. And that goes up and up. There is an end point for small dogs. I would make that stepwise increase three times. So in total, a small dog is going to have a total of six drops. For a large breed dog, it would be the same amount, but now it's a 2% concentration. So they're actually getting more each time. The reason we put an, an end point on this is because if you're no, if the owners are noticing before the end point that they're getting increased drooling, vomiting, or soft stools, it's important that they go backwards to the previous dose because too much sympathetic tone will actually could potentially kill their dog through dehydration. So we do say, look, because some people just don't notice their dog vomiting or notice the dog having diarrhea because they may do all these activities outside. We do put a cap on it and say, look, don't exceed it just, just until you notice it because the dog may actually be getting quite sick despite that. If that doesn't work after several weeks of treatment, we do say to discontinue it because it's just not having the effect we want. I mean, you, won't, you don't want to go forever on that sort of thing. Sure. I would imagine that stimulating the, the parasympathetic system that much you got could it. be problematic. Absolutely. So, you know, we're just trying to get the glands jump started. We don't want to create all the other parasympathetic tone issues. Like I said, all the GI problems, that can be a problem. Just like if you had three general practitioner DVMs in a room and they're all talking about how they treat blah, blah, blah. And they all have like 10 different ways. They're not all the same. Uh, it's the same with veterinary ophthalmologists. I myself, years and years and years ago, I tried pilocarpine on a dog, had a bad reaction. That's what I remember. And so I don't use, I don't use pilocarpine. <laughs> just, I just had a, a little trauma, traumatic memory from that. So you don't have to use pilocarpine. There are a lot of ophthalmologists that do. I'm not saying it's, it's yeah. bad or good. Just be aware. It's not like this is a um, golden rule or, a, you know, engraved in stone or something. It's a tool. You don't have to use all the tools in the toolbox. Yeah. And it's very uncommon to get a good pilocarpine response. I don't I I don't think I've seen more than four in my career that have been a, a dog, and it's usually a Yorkie, that actually has a really good you sit there and you go, Oh my God, this dog is actually responding well to this medication. A carcass spaniel was another one. It's not an easy disease and it doesn't always respond. So it's just a tool. It's worth trying it when you're at the end of the rope. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that reminds me, this was when I was a resident way back when, and before cyclosporine was used for dry eyes. So we're talking midnight, late 1980s. We had a dog come in, little poodle, and it had terrible dry eye. And my mentor, Dr. Cecil Moore, University of Missouri, was a big believer in hypothyroidism exacerbating dry eye. So tested the dog, its thyroid was low and it's, I believe its cholesterol was high. Put it on thyroid supplementation and by golly, that dog 
was so much better at recheck a month later. I was amazed. Yeah. So I am a believer that hypothyroidism or borderline hypothyroidism is a key, key issue in dogs with dry eye. Every dog with dry eye gets tested. They have a, and I know there's lots of ways to test for dry eye. I, I mean, for hypothyroidism. I get that. I make it simple and I look at T4s because usually I can, often there are previous blood work that's been done before I ever saw the dog and there were T4s done so I can compare them over time. Sometimes cholesterol hasn't been done, but usually it has. I look at both those numbers because if the thyroid's low, the cholesterol's high, or you have those trends where the thyroid's getting lower, but it's still normal. The cholesterol's getting higher, but it might even still be normal. But if I see that the thyroid's in the low range of normal, cholesterol's in the high range of normal, or they go off the, you know, off the normal range, that is justification for me to have the referring veterinarian put that dog on thyroid supplement. And I think it almost always helps. There's a lot of occult hypothyroid cases out there. I think the only last treatment I would probably talk about is as a very last resort when tear production is zero is surgical. The surgical option of a parotid duct transposition where you're relocating one of the salivary ducts that enters the mouth. You have multiple so you won't miss it. A single duct can be transposed to release its, the saliva content into the lower lid, which then results in saliva being placed onto the cornea. That's something that your veterinary ophthalmologist would do. It is not a catch-all. It's not going to be treatment-free afterwards, but it's an option to provide wetness to the cornea. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I do remember that one from vet school. I have seen a couple of patients who have undergone that surgery and... There was more management down the line than yes. I expected there to be. So having owners prepared for that, but otherwise can go can be really, really helpful for these patients. That's exactly right. I understand that you guys are creating a website to kind of help make some of this information more readily available to practitioners. Can you tell us more about the website you're creating? Marty and I and some other um, professionals, veterinary and otherwise, have undertaken a massive adventure, which is very cool. We are creating a new kind of pet healthcare website featuring original articles from veterinarians, including veterinary ophthalmologists, about veterinary ophthalmology and as it relates to dermatology, teeth, and aging. As these are interlinked, there are original articles specifically for pet owners that we know that DVMs, veterinary technicians, and support staff will also benefit. There is a huge need for uh, a single location, centralized site for veterinary ophthalmology topics because it just doesn't exist. And pet owners are frustrated, and I'm sure general practitioners are too. You have to go around and look and look and look to find this stuff, and we know that can be done better. So that's what we're doing. There will also be a repository, the site will be a repository for pet owners to organize their pet health records. It'll be launching spring of 2024. Um, it's called PetHealthHarbor.com, and it's the British spelling of Harbor, H-A-R-B-O-U-R. If you'd like updates or sneak peeks or to contribute articles yourself, because we're very open to that, please visit it, sign up, and we will keep you updated. Very cool. Well, I mean, if this podcast is any example of the type of information that you're making available, that's really exciting because you certainly expanded on dry eye in a way that I've been looking for on a routine basis. So I know it'll, it will 
adjust my approach to different patients and different presentations and also you know, just being aware of the treatment options and kind of what to reach for. So very exciting to know that that's going to be available and have all kinds of fantastic clinical information on it. Thank you both so much for joining me for this episode. It really has been very enlightening. And like I said, thinking about dry eye in a way that I haven't previously. So thank you again. Oh, you're most welcome. Yes, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Well, I hope everybody listening has a little more confidence when approaching dry eye cases. Thank you so much, Dr. Ford and Dr. McCullough for joining me. Such a pleasure to meet with you. Thank you to DECRA for making this talk possible. And of course, thank you to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.